This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 31st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The technology of surveilling the U.S. border has never been better, but it's not clear what security benefits it provides, while the costs to liberty of some of that technology is particularly troubling. Cato's David Beer and Matthew Feeney discussed the new tech of border surveillance. Where did this discussion begin with securing the border? How far does that idea go back in at least recent political history? Well, you're really talking about uh, the origins of illegal immigration in the United States. And so you really have to talk about uh, the changes that were made in the 1960s that eliminated uh, really the largest guest worker program in the history of the United States, the Bracero Guest Worker Program, that was allowing uh, Mexican farm laborers to enter the United States legally every year. About a half a million or so at at its height were entering the United States uh, with legal work permits. When that was eliminated, uh, a circular flow of illegal immigration replaced it, where people would come across the border from Mexico for a few months, work in Arizona, California, and Texas, and then they would go home at the end of uh, the season. And this was hugely beneficial uh, to uh, agriculture in those regions. And so Congress started debating really in the 70s, but then uh, it really heated up in the 1980s uh, when you had more than a million um, Mexicans uh, crossing the border illegally every year. And, And during the 1980s, you had a debate about how do you address, uh, first of all, the people who've been here for a long time, how do you address agriculture's needs, and how do you secure the border? And really, in the 1980s, you started seeing more of this idea of an invasion. People are invading our country, and they are taking our jobs, and and that sort of uh, rhetoric really amped up. And uh, in 1986, Congress addressed that issue by passing a law that uh, provided amnesty or legalization to three million uh, Mexicans. Um, Half of them were seasonal farm laborers. Uh, The other half were long-term residents of the United States. And uh, it attempted to provide uh, more work visas for agriculture as well. Um, But at the same time, it called for huge increases in border security, um, including um, some fencing and uh, a major increase in border patrol agents. How much of that, uh, I mean, a wall or a fence is a piece of technology. How much at the time were, was, a, was there a reliance on specific pieces of technology versus just more people driving around? Well, it was, it was far more uh, tilted toward more people. Um, so you had only about 3,000 or so Border Patrol agents back in 1986, and then, uh, you know, today you've had, you have about uh, 20,000. And so you're really talking about a massive increase in terms of manpower. And really in the 1990s, you had uh, an initial fence being built um, very cheaply between San Diego and uh, Tijuana, Mexico. And uh, that was only about 14 miles of the border that were that was fenced in in 1990 as a direct result of the uh, the efforts that were being made um, through the 1986 law. 
And when that really failed, um, you just saw all of the flow just shift uh, 14 miles inland, and uh, you know the same number of people were crossing. And so, in 1996, they passed another law that required the fence to be doubled. Um, and you know, a second layer be added in San Diego, and, and more fencing in other urban areas. And really, the goal there was not even to prevent illegal immigration per se, but just to force it into more rural areas where it was less noticeable. And maybe uh, by forcing it into those rural areas, you would have uh, fewer people want to cross the border because of essentially fear of death, of starvation or uh, or uh, d- deprivation in the desert. So part of the part of the technological advance is forcing people to go through the desert if they want to get to the United States. Exactly. Yeah. So the the goal the goal was quite explicitly, uh, yeah, we're going to force them to risk their lives uh, in order to get to the United States, and then fewer people will want to make that. Uh, that attempt uh, that really that did happen. Uh, fewer people did make the attempt, uh, but in the process, many uh, hundreds and even thousands of people over the the last couple of decades have died uh, in the Arizona and, and Texas, uh, and New Mexico uh, deserts. Uh, Matthew Feeney, to you, the Customs and Border Patrol has expansive authority, uh, a certain number of miles within the border. Where uh, do our are our rights a little fuzzier along the border, and what is CBP empowered to do to even people who are U.S. citizens? Yeah, so Customs and Border Protection uh, reserve the right to uh, conduct activities within actually 100 miles of the U.S. Uh, land and maritime borders. Uh, this is an area that includes entire states such as Florida and a number of states in New England. And it's actually an area where about two-thirds of people in the United States live. So some listeners might be familiar with uh, stories of interior internal checkpoints. So these are checkpoints that are actually away from the border where drivers can be stopped and ask for uh, ask the question, are you a U.S. citizen? Uh, my, my own opinion on this, and it's uh, shared by uh, other civil libertarians, is that this is an affront to the U.S. Constitution. Unfortunately, it has been uh, upheld by Congress through statute, but also by uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, which has held that uh, internal checkpoints away from the border uh, don't necessarily run afoul of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. So what uh, – there are no current challenges to this or there are, but they don't tend to go anywhere? There are challenges to this authority, but it's a bit of an uphill climb. Uh, there's a, a long precedent for something called the uh, – what's colloquially referred to as the border exception to the Fourth Amendment. So we see this not only when it comes to internal checkpoints, but also uh, travelers who arrive at airports where uh, CBP – uh, have the authority to search electronic devices, including phones and laptops, without first having to establish uh, suspicion or probable cause. All right. So uh, I know Rand Paul has made a particular stink about this, going so far as to uh, refuse some of these uh, searches of his own devices. But where in legislation do we see anything that might be moving on it? So Senator Paul and his Democratic colleague, Senator Wyden, as well as a few members of the House have introduced legislation that would require uh, DHS, so Department of Homeland Security, agents to first secure a warrant before searching 
these uh, electronic devices, but at the moment they haven't been implemented into law. I should mention, though, that uh, we don't necessarily need Congress to pass legislation here. Uh, the executive branch could promulgate through policy this requirement, but uh, the Trump administration uh, has not been forthcoming in that respect. So for CBP, and as you said, two-thirds of Americans live in this zone, um, what actually limits their authority and how have they interpreted this authority so broadly? So they they are still limited by the Fourth Amendment uh, to the Constitution. So they, uh, for example, uh, CBP cannot, without reasonable suspicion, just pull someone over on the side of a road just because uh, they decide to uh, because they have a hunch that someone might be an illegal immigrant. That, that's why they set up these these checkpoints. Uh, but but they really do enjoy uh, and have certainly interpreted uh, the law to mean that they have um, many many more. Uh, avenues of investigation that traditional law enforcement just do not enjoy uh, further into the interior. So uh, there are some other pieces of technology that have been adopted or may soon be adopted based on uh, some current policy changes at the border. Uh, what are those? So since uh, the mid 2000s, uh, CBP have been flying uh, predator drones, which many listeners will usually uh, associate with uh, our, our government's activities abroad. These are devices and tools that are used for targeted uh, strikes in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, they're also used for surveillance there. And this surveillance capability is what CBP are very interested in. And it's something that the, the current administration and his allies on Capitol Hill have also expressed uh, a desire to, to expand. But What's interesting about this is that actually these drones are not particularly effective at either seizing illegal drugs or apprehending people trying to cross the border illegally. Uh, on top of that, they're quite expensive. Uh, we're talking about, I think, about uh, $1,200, uh, $12,000 per flight hour. Uh, but they, they, despite the fact that they are not particularly effective, there have been pushes to expand this capability. Uh, and this is worrying because these are highly intrusive surveillance tools that can infringe on the civil liberties of Americans. In addition to CBP using these, uh, local law enforcement can request uh, these assets be used for their own investigations. And it's, it's of course, not just these kind of big uh, predator drones that are of concern. Uh, DHS is also interested in smaller drones that they would like to see outfitted with facial recognition technology. Uh, and given the border zone that we've just discussed, it's uh, n not exactly the case that if CBP had facial recognition drones that only illegal immigrants would have to be worried. David, to you, what do you expect to see in the negotiations currently moving through with regard specifically to activities at the border and what uh, the president wants and what he's likely to get. So the president's asking for $24 billion in border security funding to fund a variety of activities, including his uh, border wall construction, as well as uh, more detention uh, beds and, and space for detaining um, people who are caught near the border. Um, one of the uh, aspects of this is when you're talking about this amount of money, so $24 billion, to put in context, right now, Border Patrol spends uh, only a little bit more than $3 billion uh, per year. 
And so they're talking about uh, what would amount to um, um, six times, uh, more than six times as much uh, funding for Border Patrol as what it currently spends in a given year. And so you're really talking about a situation in which we really need to talk about who benefits from all this spending. Uh, it is quite ineffective. Uh, the, the border fences have not been shown to reduce illegal immigration. The border drones have not been shown to reduce illegal immigration, but there is a huge industry in the United States that will stand to benefit um, from the government contracts that are being dispensed in order to, um, you know, fund this this huge expansion in border security. So General Atomics is the one, as uh, the company that builds uh, the Predator drone. They're looking for contracts uh, with Border Patrol um, or, or Customs and Border Protection. Um, you're talking about several contractors who currently, uh, the contractors who are vying for the border wall are all companies that have uh, annual revenue of, of less than or about a billion dollars or less. And so you're talking about something that will cost you know twenty four billion dollars to sp- to to build out over the thousand uh, uh, plus miles of border. And so uh, there there's a lot of money here being spent, and uh, a lot of companies stand to benefit. And I think that's really uh, an aspect of this that needs uh, some more attention. What is the role of states here? I mean, there are a variety, there are a number of states that are on the border. There's private property at the border. There are uh, Indian tribes that have uh, some degree of sovereignty over the, the territory that they own that is on the border. What about those people? Well, that's an important aspect of this as well. So uh, two-thirds of the border is not uh, owned uh, directly by the federal government. And so um, the literal land along the border is in private hands, uh, primarily in Texas. Uh, so uh, if you look at where the Bush administration built the uh, existing fences along the border, almost all of it is in uh, public lands in Arizona, New Mexico, and California. Uh, there's the Rio Grande, of course, uh, uh, covering 1,200 miles in Texas. Uh, so there's less of a need for a, a fence there, although the Trump administration has been talking about building uh, its wall in Texas. And if they do, uh, then you're then you're talking about taking private property um, from private property owners through eminent domain. And really what that process looks like from the private property owner's perspective is that you get a letter in the mail that says that the government is looking to seize your property. Um, you have uh, you know, a couple of weeks in which you can uh, challenge uh, their uh, condemnation proceedings in court legally. Um, but as long as it's you know, a condemnation for a public use, uh, which it would be, then it's constitutional and it's legal. And immediately, the government would seize control of your land. And uh, only after that do you negotiate over what's called just compensation um, under the Constitution. We're entitled to really the market value of the land. And uh, that's really up for debate. How much is this worth uh, to you? How much is it worth on the market? How much would it depreciate the rest of the value of your land? And so that negotiations can take 
years. Uh, some some are, are even taking more than a decade uh, from under the uh, Bush administration. And so uh, it's really a taking of your private property immediately and then uh, years or, or, or even decades later uh, talking about getting the compensation for that land. So one aspect of this um, you know, that's really important is just the piece of surveillance um, that is being discussed by what I would call the moderate Republicans in Congress. Um, so you have President Trump advocating for a physical wall along 1,200 to 1,500 miles of the 2,000 mile uh, uh, southwest border. And uh, at the same time, you have you know, the moderate Republicans talking about it, what's called a virtual fence. That's uh, really code for surveillance along the entire border, 24-7, total and complete uh, visual surveillance. Um, and then that would allow Border Patrol to quickly respond uh, to areas in which there are people crossing the border and deploy resources and, and make apprehensions that way, as opposed to building you know, a stationary uh, physical wall that could be climbed over or dug under. And uh, this idea, has this has been around again for uh, well over a decade. Uh, Boeing, uh, again, another company uh, who's you know really invested in this, um, uh, received a billion dollar contract from the Bush administration to build a so-called virtual fence, and it completely failed. Uh, DHS uh, abandoned the project in 2011, and uh, really we're back to back to square one. We're we're repeating history uh, by talking about these ideas that. Uh, have failed and and will continue to fail um, into the future. I've spoken about this with uh, Jim Harper, and I've got a podcast coming out with him about this as well. It wasn't that long ago that uh, your mainstream Republicans were virulently opposed to uh, a national ID card. And now we're uh, entering a moment where there needs to be essentially no card and that you have to present to anyone because by virtue of the fact that you're presenting your face in public, that can be your card. Yeah, I wrote recently about how our faces are increasingly becoming our papers. Uh, and that's thanks to this uh, kind of facial recognition uh, and, and biometric uh, technology uh, that we're becoming sadly increasingly used to. Uh, the fact is that the kind of immigration policies that have been announced uh, and supported by the current administration will require that the government gather more and more information about not only immigrants, but also citizens. Sadly, we're seeing this at a few airports across the country where DHS is trialing the uh, use of facial scanners uh, as as part of the boarding process at uh, international airports. And this is a, a huge worry for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's important to note that, that although Congress has authorized uh, biometric collection, it never explicitly mandated or ordered or allowed the biometric collection of American citizens' faces, and yet there are reports that Americans have been subject to this. Another worry, of course, is that actually this technology is not as accurate as some science fiction films might make you think. There are a number of concerns associated with the fact that facial recognition, uh, because it's not as accurate as people think, could lead to many 
Americans and other travelers uh, being hassled or uh, harassed when they shouldn't, thanks to the fact that this technology is far from perfect. David Beer and Matthew Feeney are policy analysts at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.